Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I am joined by Megan Crow, Mary Simon, and Liz Lenevy. And today we are going to be talking about legal researching, which, of course, is any attorney's bread and butter hard skill, must understand how to do it very well. But I have found in my own career that, well, two things. One, you don't have to have a lot of experience to be a really good legal researcher. However, as your career goes on, you get better at it or at least more efficient. So today we're going to talk about some tips to improve your legal research and kind of pull the audience on how you approach projects and how you delegate research projects and things like that. So let me start with the sources. So I started working in a law firm when I was 15. And the first time I saw a legal case citation, I thought it was like another language. (laughs) And I remember asking an attorney like, what is this? Like, I get the Smith versus Wilson part, but what the heck is all that other alphabet soup after it? And then they said something about a blue book. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it just it's so foreign and so counterintuitive to someone who hasn't studied the law nor had to be involved with any legal cases that everything that we do obviously comes from case law precedent and judges writing opinions and having the skills to research within a database to find those cases that support your opinion or to find the law that is, you know, guiding you or different than what you thought it was. So in law school, the companies that run the databases, LexisNexis, Westlaw, you get free access to all of those in law school, basically. And it's such a smart marketing technique because as a law student, you kind of find what, you know, you like or you know, whichever service you're using to research, you kind of get stuck in your ways and then want to continue using that when you're in practice. However, I have, for the most part, found that most law firms have Westlaw. Most courts use Westlaw. If some firms use LexisNexis, it's in addition to Westlaw. But each has different features, obviously, that you can use to do your research. So when I started practicing and was in law school, Westlaw, you kind of had to learn this different language on how to search things anyway. But now it's a little easier. Westlaw is more like a Google search or a keyword search, which has made my life better because Boolean searching was just always so difficult. Megan, did you ever have to experience Boolean searching? A little bit. I started off law school a diehard Westlaw fan. I never used Lexis. And luckily that transferred into every firm I've been at has used Westlaw, so I haven't had to adjust my preferences at all. But I will say that one thing that is frustrating, perhaps if you are used to the all-access Westlaw in law school, transitioning to a firm that has limited Westlaw access can be really challenging. I know our firm has pretty much unlimited Westlaw, but that the last firm I was at, it did not. And learning how to research within the confines of 
what you can and can't access on Westlaw can be quite a challenge and you have to really make more targeted searches or really know what you're looking for before you take that extra step and go past a paywall. This is where I'm going to jump in in defense of the Boolean search. Something I pride myself on is how narrow I make my search terms. In law school, I took an entire class on researching. And a big part of that class was learning how to utilize them, which when I first went in, I was like, I'll just Google search. It's like a Google search. You'll get a ton of hits, but it's so inefficient. So when you can actually learn what all the little symbols mean and and basically learn to speak that language, it really does help. So I am 100% on board with Boolean searches. I think that they are underutilized by people in our practice. And I highly recommend if you have an opportunity to take a class to teach you how to do a Boolean search, like I got more out of that than I did secure transactions. I use that every day. <laughs> totally. That's not no, a stretch. No, no shade to my secure <laughs> transactions, Professor. Do you still use that even with the Westlaw more keyword or Google searching type? Absolutely. Yeah. I resort to that when I can't find something. And, you know, I hate when I assign a research project to someone else and unfortunately, you know, they come back and say, oh, I can't find anything that says that. And I'm like, well, that can't be true. I have a hot tip for Westlaw. If you do not know how to do a Boolean search, you can always live chat the Westlaw support people. In the bottom of your Westlaw, there should be like a live chat feature and you can ask them what you're searching for and they will give you like a populated what the Boolean search should be to get you the best results. The Westlaw people will help you go through your search terms or if you tell them like what you're looking for, what type of law you're looking for, they will create your searches or like workshop with you how you should search it and they'll send you like the searches and the results. And there was a woman who like used to spend like 10 minutes every morning on her drive into work like telling Westlaw what she needed searched. And then she'd like show up at work. She'd have like five emails with all of her research that she needed for whatever motion or whatever issues. Sounds like a boss. Yes, that was a boss. And I kind of thought I'd try it. And you have to be way more organized and off the cuff to not sit there like I do, like picking at my keyboard, like, well, maybe this. Maybe that. Of course. (laughs) And even if you did that, you'd sit down at your desk, get the emails, and then trust that you'd have to do it on your own in order to really trust what you're looking at. That's how I would feel anyway. So true. So true. Okay. So ladies, you sit down, you are evaluating a new case and you look at a completely new legal issue and you're like, I don't know how that claim operates or, you know, what the legal parameters are. How do you set up and go about that research project to find out if you have a case. I am a big fan of, in our state, the Missouri Practice Series. I always will use that as an overview of the claim or the topic or whatever it is. It covers pretty much any aspect of practice that you could be looking for, and it's not all-encompassing or it's not very comprehensive, but it's a great place to start, and the footnotes will usually have a couple cases that you can go to. What about ALR? Do you ever use that or is that too wide of a net? 
I have not since law school, probably when I had to. I learned about the Missouri Practice Series in law school, and that's the one that's kind of stuck with me because it seemed the most practical, especially in the type of work that we do. Liz? I was going to echo what Megan said, which is start with your secondary sources. Actually, I just had this conversation a couple months ago with someone in the office who was doing a research project but didn't have formal law school training yet. He was telling me about all the case law he was looking at. I go, okay, well, what the secondary sources say? So I, I didn't look at those yet. I go, no, 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 no. You never just jump into case law. It's like if you're learning how to swim, you're not going to just jump into the deep end and hope you make it back. You're going to start in the shallow end and you're going to sort of work your way out there. And that's what secondary sources are. It just sort of gives you a 30,000 foot overview of what the issues are. And it can oftentimes lead you to the specific case law that you need. The Missouri Practice Series is phenomenal. I don't know who the folks are that update that every year, but they do a great job. And what's really great about using the secondary sources is that every year when it's updated, you know you're getting the most recent law. So if there's been something, a case that was recently reversed, if you've been relying on it for 15 years, but now it's bad law, the Missouri Practice Series or whatever your state's version of that will tell you that. So you know, if you're a young lawyer, do not jump into case law. Start with the secondary sources, work your way up there. And then as far as using things like ALR, I find that really useful if I'm in a situation where I'm trying to do almost like a 50-state survey. So for example, I had a pretty hairy research project a couple months ago on a new issue in Missouri law. Basically, the Missouri Supreme Court had kind of created this brand new legal theory, this brand new legal issue. There was no existing state law on it. And so I needed to figure out what other jurisdictions were doing in order to sort of form what our argument was going to be. And so using those sort of nationwide secondary sources was really helpful in just getting an idea of what the other states do and which states I specifically wanted to focus on because I liked their law better for purposes of our <laughs> argument. So I don't find myself using ALR too often. I think the more narrow you can get your secondary source, the better, but definitely step one, start with something broad like that. I agree. And especially, I guess, in the narrow example I gave that you might be looking at a new claim, I would always start with jury instructions. And especially a lot of states that have pattern jury instructions will have notes and case citations to those instructions as well. If you can find a verdict director or the applicable jury instruction for your state, that's going to have the law on at least a cause of action if that's what issue you're researching. So that's also a really good place to start too. If it's a claim issue and you're trying to figure out when you're taking the case what you actually need to work up, jury instructions or a verdict director make sense because that is literally what you have to prove and show. So you need to know the elements and what you need to be able to show to take the case and win. I like using the MoPrac series, and I also, anytime I'm faced with a legal research issue, maybe it's not a claim specific, you know, to the example you gave, Erica, but if it's an illegal issue, I like, after using the MoPrac series, I will go to the rule or the statute that is directly on point for the issue, and I'll read the rule, have an understanding of what the rule actually says. I'll read the comments on the rule, the intent, what the rule was actually intended for, do kind of a deeper dive into the rule itself, have a really good understanding of what that rule is intended for, why it was created. You can see different versions of statutes 
on Westlaw. You can see if changes were made to it over time to really get into why that rule exists. When I'm doing case law research, I look generally for cases that talk about the rule generally. And maybe I'll read some of those cases because oftentimes the rule will be discussed in cases in the same manner over again, like courts will be deciding a certain particular application of the rule in the same manner over and over again. And after I have a grasp of what really is up for interpretation in courts with this specific rule, if I'm really unfamiliar with it, I'll get more narrow with looking for a case, applying it in the way I want it to. Because to Liz's point, if you're just blanket looking for case law that says something that you want, and you don't have a really thorough understanding of what exactly the issue is, how it's applied in Missouri, where it's applied, what types of cases it's discussed in, it's really hard to just be cold on an issue, type in a case, and then read one case and know that it says. Even if, even if you're someone who prefers to go straight to the case law, you can find the case, put that case on the shelf in your file, and then go back and get a thorough understanding. Because it might be that you see a quote that you really like in an application of a rule or something, and you can just save that case, save the citation, continue your research. And at the end, when you've kind of compiled the cases, you've looked at the rule, you've read the comments, then you can really do a a thorough synthesis of all the information in your brain and do what lawyers do. We put on our lawyer hat and we're able to read through that and condense it down to a really concise understanding and that we can relay it to a judge. I really like the getting the background first and then doing the deep dive. Although I will say when you're in a crunch and you get that case really quickly, it's like finding gold when you do. <laughs> Especially when that case gives like a really strong overview of like yes. the history of the law in this area. And it's like a Supreme Court case that's like three <laughs> yeah. years old. And you're like, I am so golden here. That's a good day. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. Mary, to your point, citing references is my favorite, one of my favorite features. If I'm looking at a rule or something, a statute that controls, go to the citing references and the cases that cite that statute are usually organized by topics. You can see what are the kind of hot topics under that statute. What are people analyzing in cases with respect to that statute? And you can quote the rule that you're looking for. And I know I've even done this before. Erica, I talked to you about this on certain insurance policies, even like certain rules or clauses or something, you can just plug right in and see what shows up in terms of where that line has been cited. And that tells you a whole bunch of information. For sure. Now I want to hear kind of your preferences and styles about researching. Do you have rules or frameworks around how old of cases you will cite or what court level you will cite for certain issues? So I kind of like doing one of the most recent cases on the issue and then also maybe an older case that shows this is the rule. This has always been the rule. It was the rule in the 50s and it's the rule now. Generally, as a rule of thumb, I'd always go with more recent over older, but there are certainly instances where using an old case can be kind of punchy. My rule of thumb as far as age goes, if the case was brought down prior to World War One, I, I really don't <laughs> want to use it. That's, That's sort of real desperate. The judge <laughs> yeah. is going to look at that and go, yeah, you got nothing, but really good try. Like if it's literally older than sliced bread, I don't think it's a good case. To <laughs> <try>. <laughs> right. But sometimes it might be the only case you have. And, and I've certainly been in that situation where I'm thinking, you know, this is really such a narrow, weird niche 
issue that the only case I can find was for some reason in 1886. I don't know why this is, but if it's the only Missouri case I can find, and I'm in Missouri, then I'll cite it. But also, I realize that that is not particularly convincing, and I will try to find something more recent. But, you know, if it's the only thing you got, sometimes you just got to work with what you have. You guys are all too generous because if it doesn't have a 20 in front of the cashier, I'm probably not citing it. (laughs) You won't cite something from like the 80s or the 90s? I'm not saying I won't do it, but you know, at this point, when I'm doing research in my day-to-day practice, it's usually kind of to get a general overview for something. There's been a couple cases, I guess, that I've done a lot of the briefing and the original research myself. But a lot of times I'm reviewing other clerks or another attorney's research and writing. And when I'm looking at the research, I look at it so critically. If like you're citing a 1976 case for like a pretty standard issue, unless you're doing what Megan was saying and taking the strategy of let me cite that here's the Supreme Court case from Missouri, 1976, and it's still being cited in 2021 as good law by an appellate court. That's where I think that that makes sense. But to get the best product and the best research, unless you're looking at a case that is so factually on point, I don't think you should be citing stuff that's more than 10, 20 years old if you can help it. Another good age rule is if there is a landmark case about an issue, I will not say anything before that case was decided. So if there had been a Supreme Court case about this in 2017, I wouldn't cite a district court case about it from 2009. Or like a rule change, right? That's smart. So how do you go through when you're researching a specific issue and deal with the fact that you're not finding, okay, so the hierarchy I have in my head, assuming we're researching a state law issue, is first I want to cite Missouri Supreme Court as recent as possible. Second, I want to cite an appellate court in the district in which my court is in as recent as possible. If I can't find that, I'll cite other appellate courts as well. But if I have the choice, I'll use that district. Then I sometimes look at trial court orders, like what's the hierarchy in your head if you can't find things at the most precedential level, I guess, how do you go through that? So right now, I'm actually working on a a motion where it's about an issue of federal preemption of a state law claim. And there's this kind of undecided issue, and it hasn't been talked about in any of the Missouri court's It's been talked about in some federal courts, and it's been talked about in one federal appellate court. And so the law really there is to go to the analogous federal cases. And in this case, I'm looking at the Eastern District of Missouri cases as opposed to like, you know, Southern District of Texas. So I try and stay as close to home as possible, even if there's nothing on point that's binding. I want to use something persuasive that's close to home. What about when you have the issue that you find something that is directly on point or arguably on point and exactly the opposite of what you're arguing? How do you deal with that? You got to find a way to distinguish your case. I mean, that's it. My rule is that you also have to cite it. 
you cite the case you're relying on and then you use that CF and cite the bad law because one of our ethical rules is candor towards a tribunal. And I've seen several judges react when a attorney who filed a motion didn't show them directly the case law that went against them. And it was pointed out in a response. And that's never the position you want to be in. No. And that's my favorite thing to do in a response is if there's on point case law, which has been clearly omitted, I'm not going to say intentionally, I won't assume anyone's intentions, but that's the easiest way to allow your opponent to get just an easy dunk on you. There's no other way to describe it. And you're not just letting your opponent get an easy dunk on you. You are shooting your own credibility with the court. Because now the court, if the judge decides to remember you, and if it's something that's egregious enough and it's worth remembering, they're going to think about you as the lawyer that was not forthcoming with everything. So when you're in a situation where the law is directly on point, you have to find something that distinguishes your set of facts from whatever is in that bad case law. You can't ignore it. You have to bring it up yourself. Bring it up first and be prepared to argue it and I mean, if it's that bad of a situation, you might just need to be prepared to lose the issue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Something that I think is important if you are listening to this as a law student or someone who's doing research for someone else and you run into this issue, don't go to the partner or whoever it is saying, this is against us, come with that case, but have the analysis ready of how you're going to distinguish it or say this is against us, but here are other cases that are for us and find a solution in the negative. Yeah, I had that situation a couple months ago where I was asked to draft something based on a legal argument that just did not exist. It didn't exist. And as frustrating as that experience was, it gave me an opportunity to shine because I was able to find other case law and through some creative arguing, come up with something that I didn't feel we would be laughed out of court. That's the thing. Ultimately, at the end of the day, your credibility, your reputation as an attorney is everything to you. And so there is no motion worth writing, no argument, brief, whatever worth submitting that's going to cost you your reputation with opposing counsel within your firm or worst of all, with a judge or with the court. Yeah. And that brings me to what I have always found to be my pet peeve as someone researching for someone else. And now I do it to other people. So how many times have you had someone come into your office and say, find me a case that says X, Y, Z. And you're like, that's not how it works. (laughs) And I do it all the time now. And so maybe I can uh, go back and be not so harsh on the partners I was working for when I was an associate. But it's so common that, you know, you want to cite something in a brief or you want to find, you know, what argument or what point you can make on an issue. And you just tell a clerk or another attorney working with you, find me a case that says this. And then you're tasked with going to do the research and potentially delivering really bad news. And it's really important that when you, my perspective is that when you run into that, Megan, kind of like you're saying, you know, if you find bad law or it's not the answer, you cannot hide it. You have to put it in front of that lawyer's face because otherwise they may not know about it. They're probably relying on you completely to do the research 
And the thing that you may not know, and you might want to ask for clarification is, do you know that that is the law or are you unsure (laughs) of what the law is in this area? Because half the time I say that, I mean, find me a case that says this because I've absolutely 100% know that that's the law and read it before. Or sometimes I'm saying find a case that says this because I really want there to be a case like that out there. I recently had given my law clerk a research assignment and I said, these are the three things that I want to respond to this notion with. So I want three cases that say this. If these don't exist, I want to know that too. If I can't say this, I want to know that too. When I first started working at the firm and I was working with an attorney who isn't at our firm anymore, but she and I were going to court to argue just a series of motions in a case. I wasn't doing the bulk of the oral argument, but I had researched, as this always happens, sometimes the second attorney on the case will do the bulk of the research and writing. And I was standing in the courtroom and I had read this case so many times. And the most significant part of it was in like the last paragraph of the case. And the judge was speaking with the attorney from our office and the defense attorney, and they were going in circles. And I just knew that this one case had the answer. And I didn't, as a new attorney, I'm not trying to, you know, interrupt the attorney from our office who's in the middle of a really good flow and an argument. But I'm like, oh, this is the case. Like, I know where this is at. And I was like, you know what, we're going to win. So I just am going to do it. And I just interrupted and like circled the case and handed it to her. And we won the argument based on this one little sentence that was at the bottom of this case that we had cited. And when we left, it was so funny. She was like, that saved us. Next time, just jump right in. Just do it. If, if you can just break up the confusion that the judge is having with research. I mean, that's why that's so important, especially when you're in front of a judge who is relying on you to let them know that you've done your job because it was a tough argument, because there was some case law against us. But the most recent case came down with this exact, you know, thing that we were trying to articulate to the judge. And if the judge shows that not only have you presented them with the case law that's not super great for you, but you're able to turn it back to win. I mean, that's what it's all about when you're in front of a judge in terms of your credibility and letting them know that you do know what you're talking about. So it's not just two attorneys going back and forth, you actually have the research to show it. Well, and that makes me think of like your integrity in your research too. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've responded to a motion and I see a statement by the attorney and I see a case citation and it's like so specifically bad for me. And I'm like, no way. (laughs) So I go and grab that case and I'm like, guess what? That's not what that case says at all. And it's sloppy lawyering to not like if you're citing a case for a proposition and you're not quoting the case, one, even if you quote, you can't take it out of context. And two, if you are stretching what that case says for you, it is so much more to your detriment than either using a different case or, you know, citing it a little bit more clearly and arguing why it applies to your case. So this is like a big shout out for law students learning how to research. If you're citing a case for a general rule or just to give the court kind of the background rules on an issue, you still need to read the facts of that case and understand how that court came down on the issue. There has been so many times that I check 
you know, the research that I'm reviewing. And yeah, that's the general rule. But when you actually look at the facts of the case, the court looked at those facts, applied them to the general rule and came down in a way that doesn't support your argument or that case is like kind of similar to yours and it went the other way than what you're asking the judge to do. And you wouldn't want to draw attention to that case if you're not in a situation that you have to cite it because it's presidential or you have to put it in front of the court. You can find a different case for that general rule where the court, based on the same facts, turned on something else and came down on your way. I love it when I find that in a motion where I'm like, opposing counsel cites this case. That case is right on point for plaintiff's issue. Let me analyze it for you, court, and show you why. And it just really undermines their argument. And that's where strong research skills win the day and win your motion. Erica, what you just said is like the number one rule that I learned that they didn't teach you in law school that I learned as soon as I started practice, which is say you're doing motion for summary judgment. There's a million summary judgment cases out there. You can find a million cases that state the summary judgment standard. Don't just find one that states the standard well. Find one that states the standard well and denied summary judgment or however you're asking the court to resolve this issue. One question I have for you all and that I've seen attorneys apply differently in their practices is the use of one case for too much of your argument, like relying on one case for the bulk of your argument. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. If you've got an issue and you find that golden case that's recent, it includes the rule that you're talking about, an explanation of the rule, it's factually on point, it's on your side and it helps you. Are you just going to cite that one case to carry the day for you? So I'm going to give the terrible lawyer answer of it depends. I think it depends on what other cases are available, one. And then two, it depends on how complicated your issue is. So if you have a really simple issue where you've got a case that is directly on point, it's recent, it is authoritative, and it can really just boil things down easily for the court, then that's great to have. And if it's a situation where it's a simple issue and you can cite that one case heavily, and maybe there's other cases that are also sort of on point, maybe not as strong, you can utilize what we call string cites or just cram them all into one quick paragraph saying, you know, judge, I've got this great case. I'm going to talk to you about this. You're going to understand this case because of how thoroughly I'm going to describe it. But also I'll throw additional case law in there so that you can rely on a couple other sources as well. So I think that that's fine to do if you have a simple case or really if you don't have much other case law that you can turn to. Now, if it's more of a complicated issue or it's a, a situation where you need to provide a lot of authoritative sources, and I'm thinking really now in terms of appellate writing, where your brief is everything. I mean, obviously, you'll get your chance to do an oral argument if it's not submitted on brief only. But thinking back to my time interning for the Court of Appeals when I was in law school, the brief was everything for us. I mean, that was where we started our own research when we looked into these cases to prepare and help the judge come up with their ultimate opinions. And if we're writing the opinion, what we needed to write. So if you're writing like an appellate brief, you need to cram as much case law, good case law in there as you possibly can, because it's going to be the starting point for the clerk that is researching it. So that's my thought is, you know, if you've got a simple issue, you can probably rely on one, two cases. If you've got something complicated or you're submitting something where the brief or the motion is particularly important, 
then you should go with more. What I like to do is don't just stop at one case, but also don't list a huge string site of cases. Like I don't want to string site every single case that's ever decided this issue because that's going to be pointless and more than likely they're not all completely relevant. So what I like to do is choose the three cases that are most on point. And usually there's going to be one with the facts that are most analogous to your present issue. And so if I'm citing a rule, I'll cite maybe those two other cases as a support for that rule and then tease out the third one that I think is most analogous in a little bit more detail. So it's just a way of showing that this isn't the only case on point, but it is the most relevant. And so I want to highlight this one. I'm pretty sure I've, you know, written full briefs being like, this is the case on point. It's binding precedent on the court. There's really no argument here. But those situations are pretty rare, you know, where there's no argument or it can't be distinguished. Unless it's like the way a rule is applied or something like that, that's not fact dependent. In one case in particular, I have in mind, the opposing counsel will cite like 10, 15 string sites. And I think I said earlier, I have been reading briefing lately where they say something so specific and so against me that I'm like, no way that case says that. And lo and behold, this is the same counsel. That case never says that. So what I have started doing as a strategy in that case, and that judge in particular reads everything we write, does his own research and has chastised both of us once, by the way, for finding a case on point that neither of us cited. So, you know, bad on both of us. But I mean, that gives you a pretty strong watch out right there. I have been block quoting quite a bit in my briefing in that case because it's so much in contrast to how the other lawyer is taking cases out of context. So I take that exact case that they're saying says, you know, ABC and say, no, judge, this is the case. These are the facts here's the block quote of exactly what this case says, because I just I'm being gaslighted by those attorneys in the briefing, you know, when they're arguing what the case looks like. My goodness, in negotiations, resolving the case, they're even gaslighting me. So, so yeah, I've taken a different approach because the situation called for in that case. When I was in law school, I remember getting some feedback one time on a writing assignment I had turned on, on relying too heavily on block quotes. The feedback was basically, you know, you're here to make arguments and to put your own words onto it and to convince the court. And I did not take that criticism well. And I have still disregarded that criticism to this day because really, in my opinion, I love block quotes because it doesn't matter so much what I think. The court does not care what I think. I want the court to be able to rely on what other courts have said is precedent. So I want to know what they think. I think that there's a lot of things that we can do creatively to make strong arguments. And again, if you can argue, make your argument through someone else's words that you know the judge has to respect, do it. I think one of my favorite pieces of advice that I've gotten on my legal writing is when I took moot court in law school, one of the first days of that class, the professor said, forget what they told you in legal research and writing, which was to paraphrase everything into your own words and instead just quote it. In legal research and writing, we weren't allowed to quote over a certain number of times in our brief. Everything after that had to be paraphrased, so to speak. And 
my moot court professor was like, no, if this is the rule and you want to say it and it's been said by a court, you want to let your audience know that this is the exact wording that they have used. And I personally like that advice. And I use quoting and block quoting in my writing now quite a bit because I want the judge or whoever the audience is to know this is actually what the rule is. This isn't my interpretation of the rule. I'm glad you told that story, Megan, because now I feel a little more vindicated in my response. (laughs) Well, with that, thank you, ladies, for taking us through all your tips and tricks for legal research. I hope that our listeners have gained some strategies for themselves or some tips to help improve your research as well. So join us next time on Heels in the Courtroom. Our new episodes drop on Wednesdays, and we'll see you there. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 